0: We're so glad you found us here at the Leadership After Hours podcast. If you're finding value in this content, please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're on. This allows us to spread the modern leadership revolution. Plus, you don't want to miss out on a single weekly episode. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to the Leadership After Hours podcast. Real talk with real leaders committed to creating better companies and a better world. Presented by Stronger Leaders, Stronger Profits with your host, Sean Patton. All right. Well, welcome to Leadership After Hours Podcast. I'm very excited to have a friend of mine, Scott McTavish, who is the founder of McTavish Pictures and an author and has an amazing story and has accomplished a lot of things, um, you know, a veteran and also in the creative space and just a ton of great experience that uh, I'm excited to dive into. So thanks for agreeing to do this, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me in. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. um, So just to kind of give, you know, some backs so we're not a huge uh, you know, life story type of thing. I yeah. like to get the meat and potatoes, but you have a really interesting background um coming from a small town in Appalachia uh and then getting in the military. So you want to kind of share how how you went from there, kind of that experience and, you know, why why go in the military? What was that decision like? Yeah, so it was um
1: I was I was born and raised in a small town of 8,000 like a lot of military guys oh, are. Um uh, The town in Appalachia uh, was once a boom town, um, then started having some really massive problems. Uh, Famously became a big uh, Oxycontin destination. Um, My family, personally, uh, my father was absentee. Um, I knew him, but uh, not the way you want to know your father. He was a drug addict and had other issues. My mom was an educator, and she raised three boys. Um, I was the oldest. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I, uh, I made the d- decision to, to get out, and uh, I randomly chose uh, the Navy after uh, – well, I say randomly. I, I looked at everything, but the, the Navy was the one that I knew the least about and had never been to the ocean, never seen a Navy ship. <laughs> uh, but I knew that I wanted to go to sea. Um, I had a great uncle that had served in World War II. Um, I kind of looked up to him. He was a uh, destroyer sailor in the in the South Pacific. Got hit by in a kamikaze and was killing him. Wow! And he recovered and came back and told me what it was like. And um, I always had this kind of uh, um, this sense of adventure, uh, that this, this vision of adventure around the Navy right? and boy, did I get it <laughs> so, uh, enlisted at 17. Um, I left right at, right at my 18th birthday, uh, served four years, uh, with submarine squadron, six, uh, four years active, two years reserve. And, uh, uh, that led to, um, uh, the next progression was film school at New York university, And so So, do you want to jump there yet? Yeah. Yeah. So like
0: uh, a few things when I, I can relate as I, uh, you know, my, my mom, I was lucky, you know, I had a a stepfather. um, She got married when I was in junior high. He was a great role model for me in my teenage years. Before that, I grew up with a single mom as well. Educator as well. So similar Mm -hmm. backgrounds and from Kansas. So also landlocked, never seen the ocean. Um, But I took the opposite route of like, it looks scary out there. I'm going to stay. I'm (laughs) going to go army and stay on the land where I know my feet work um, and all that. Uh, But, you know, so I, it makes sense to me to come from where you went from to say we need to go somewhere else, have an adventure, join the Navy. I mean, that makes total sense. But why uh, – but the jump to film school from, you know, being an enlisted submariner is mm-hmm. not probably the most common transition. So what, what was that decision? Is that something you always knew you kind of wanted to do or what what, what sparked that?
1: I was um, – so I had, a, I had a great aunt that was in the town that I grew up in. She was actually a Navy vet as well. Mm. And she got out of the military. She got out after World War II. And spent 20 years in the Foreign Service in Burma, uh, which is now Myanmar. And um, she was a librarian when she came back. And I grew up there. That was sort of where I hung out. Um, I was a uh, voracious reader, um, decent student, but I was really good with words and um, didn't have the grades to really go to college, didn't have the, the funds to go to college, but I was a good writer and I knew I was. When I got out of the military, I started looking at, um, I thought I was going to go on to finish my undergrad, go on to law school, and then go from there. Not very clear on what the path was going to be, but it was law was, I thought, my future. Got out and started writing uh, for myself, um, I was working, when I got out of the military, I was managing a restaurant, bartending, um, was doing a little bit of writing on my own. And then I read some articles about the new wave of uh, independent filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And that's when Steven Soderbergh and some of the other really cool directors were starting to come out. Um, you had um, Coppola and um, Scorsese and some of the other big Hollywood heavyweights who were starting to, they, they were starting to sort of fade in their novelty. And these new directors were starting to come around, and I was fascinated by it. I felt like that if I was going to write something, I wanted to get paid for it. So I started really kind of di- uh, dialing down on screenwriting, and that's where I, I got the idea to go
0: to film school. Wow. All right, so, yeah, so you're writing films, and – how was that transition for you going to film school from being in the Navy for four years? Did, did you kind of fit in because you're with your people now, or was that struggle? Or? No, it was,
1: it was it was kind of odd, really. I was four years ahead of everybody. So, so back in the day, NYU had a program called the Film Intense Program, and it was uh, basically it was like grad school crunched down into seven weeks where you would have uh, classes uh, Monday through Saturday, seven in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Uh, some of that was hands-on. Some of it was classroom learning, literally about the theory of film and how film would break down into different layers to let light through. This is when we were shooting on film, of course, not mm-hmm. before the, uh, this before the digital revolution. But uh, and then on day seven, Sunday, you would go out into into the city and shoot your movies, and um, it was pretty cool. I, I really can't name drop, it. one of my um, one of my best friends in my film team from that is. Uh, massively successful uh, writer-producer now, and mm-hmm. he's killing it. And uh, the rest of the guys uh, from my five, five-man cohort, uh, everyone else has gone on to do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's a school principal, one's an attorney, and the other guy, I don't know what happened to him. But but anyway, uh, the transition from, from the military uh, into that program, uh, I was four years older. I was in a much more structured environment. Mm-hmm. We're in Manhattan now, right? So this is a much more... Uh, carefree, uh, mm-hmm. uh, liberal, wild environment, and um, I had to learn how to lighten up a little bit. Um, I had also been tending bar when I was still active duty at night, so I had been immersed in civilian lifestyle <laughs> and kind <laughs> of knew
0: you had you had some social skills going on. Yeah, you were, I had you were completely know, behind. Right, yeah.
1: knew how to kind of uh, delineate the two um, mm-hmm. the two cultures, but. Uh, it was a great experience and it led uh right into um working on big Hollywood tent pole features. And so I did that for about 10 years and then started my own gig after
0: 9-11. Yeah. Um so you know, to me, uh to get a kind of peek into to me the film industry is um a unique working environment, right? Um, I'm also like my wife and I are really into like cooking shows, right? And I feel like that's mm-hmm. kind of seen like a, like the kitchen, right? Like that's a unique environment. Um, and I feel like you know, film one of those things where everyone has a specific job and it's and it's it's uh, it's sort of delineated. And it's like there's creativity going on, but it's like behind the scenes, there's like a lot of rigidity. It seems like because there's so much coordination that has to happen to make this one thing you know occur, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, what what was you know the leader when you went into work in the film industry after being on a, you know a submarine and then you went to just quick film school. What was what was that like? What kind of like leadership structures, management, like what was going on there, and what was your impression of that? So when you when you get out into the
1: um, so there's there's two types of or three types of of filmed entertainment. Uh, to your point about the cooking shows, you have this the smaller nonfiction. Um, like home finder shows, cooking shows, that type of thing, yeah, yeah. which are small crews of six or eight people mm-hmm. uh, from A to Z. That's uh, that many people involved in the process. But a big Hollywood feature film, a big tentpole film is, uh, you know, you might have 250 people on it. Oh, yeah. And um, what was the term "tentpole" mean? Um, that means that it's a big event. That uh, this summer coming, this summer is the Avengers mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, uh, there's
0: there's so, like a, a production company or something putting their stamp on it, like it's rising up the tentpole, like putting okay, the tentpole
1: okay, up. Gotcha. Everybody come out to the theaters and gotcha. see it. Okay, yeah, cool, it's kind cool. of an old old school Hollywood saying, but they still use it as mm-hmm. a as an event film. Cool. So you know, like when I got started, the like the really big big films I worked like the first one I worked on was the original Super Mario Brothers film. Oh wow. Um, the one that just recently came out's been a, a fantastic success. The original one was probably one of the worst films in the history of cinema. <laughs> but I had a um, I had a role in it as an I had an acting role as one of the creatures in it, right? Uh, so I still get a check, you know, once or twice a year for 3 or 4 bucks from Disney, oh, right? Nice, hey. Right, but um but being in that machine and seeing how things work and how um the one thing that's, that's really um, brilliant about the movie industry is that you have your departments and I'm talking about on the big feature films, Mm -hmm. the big Hollywood films is you have your different departments and they all run as their own little kingdom. So you have the camera department Mm -hmm. with assistant cameras and loaders and all of that. Mm -hmm. And they answer to their director of photography, Um, the grip department, they answer to the key grip, Um, the locations guys answer to locations, uh, uh, the, the lead location, uh, either company, sometimes they sub it out to a company or the, lo- the key locations guy. So anyway, everything is uh, compartmentized. And, um, that way, um, if you have beef within your, uh, department or if you have problems it's kind of handled by like an nco it'd be like a senior nco yeah, yeah. taking care of that problem yeah, like, a, like a first and then, sergeant or something right you know, exactly yeah, yeah. and so like your flag officers would be your director your producer the mm-hmm. screenwriter and the, the above the line the talent mm-hmm. are in their own little orbit up here mm-hmm. so um it was interesting i mean it was it was fascinating to see like uh another one i did was amos nandrew with uh that was nicholas cage and samuel jackson and mm-hmm that was the first time I had seen like a really big star, like in the room doing his thing. Right. And Nicholas Cage gets banged up a lot, but that guy is genius. Yeah. Uh, in his element, he's really great. And, uh, it was fun. I, you know, I learned a lot from that and, um, I was a prolific networker. I, everybody I met on scene on on set, I would uh, go up and introduce myself. I had I had a dopey little business card with a film camera and my my you know my uh, back then it was a, a a voicemail number that you you know back in the day you would yeah. call and leave a voicemail and, and then you would retrieve your voicemail when the pager hit or whatever. But that's how I started working my way up was uh, I just
0: really networked hard. And then I would climb the ladder that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's such, you know, an important lesson because it really is, you know, I've been out of the military now um, for eight years and I think people have said, you know, it's it's not about, you know, what, you know, who, you know, right. That whole phrase. Um, but, you know, after four, four or five years out, I was like, oh, this is, this is reality, you know? Um, and I can't remember if I've said this in the podcast in another episode uh, or just talking with you, but it's funny um, when I, I did a talk up in a small town outside Nashville one time and uh, said that Rotary Club. And uh, I, was, I was talking and I made kind of a joke, but it was a real comment. Um, they kind of pissed people off at first. Uh, but I said, you know, now that I've done, I've been a business owner here for a few years, I'm like, I'll tell you that doing business with, uh, Southern businessmen is a lot like working with Arab warlords. (laughs) Man, I got a few looks, I got a few like, Oh, what are you saying? You know? Uh, and, and what I told him was like, no, no, what I'm, what I mean by that is like, you know, and and it's probably different. I know it's different in the Northeast and maybe LA and some other places, but at least down, you know, in the South and Southeast. And, um, it, it's like, okay, I just met you and, you know, your proposal sounds great or, you know, your, this business plan or whatever else is part of like, so, you know, who's your father? Like, what's your family do? You know, like that, like, I don't know you. It's like, and, and when we worked with, you know, um, uh, this is true in a lot of parts of Asia uh, as you're probably familiar, but especially in the Middle East, the first meeting was all rapport building. You know, it was, you don't go in and talk business until you've had one full meeting and you've eaten together and met the families and it's kind of like that down here too. Um, so I literally kind of learned that the hard way that it, it really is about those networks. And so that's such a powerful tool, I think for, you know, rising leaders that, that ne- that networking and that face-to-face contact. And, um, you know, my, my stand-in producer Adam and I were talking right before this, how one of my mantras is every interaction is a chance to exceed someone's expectations and then it's yeah, like good. every time you meet someone, whatever opinion they had of you coming up to, even if they're just the way you looked, if they leave being like, whoa, that was that was better than I, better than I thought," um, you're probably doing the right thing because that that does pay off in in spades. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, <clears throat> you know, we
1: um, we in, we intern. We have we have an aggressive internship program. Um, depending on what our our project cycle is like, I may be able to take on one. in a a quarter or I may take on six depending on how big the film is or whatever. But the, the one thing that I always hammer into them is that um, your network is your net worth. Mm. Network is your net worth. Mm. And uh, they, uh, they, they get tired of me saying that, (laughs) but when it's time for them to leave us and go out into the world, I can hit them with six or seven introductions to some of the big you know Netflix, HBO, those types of mm-hmm. companies where I have contacts. Right. And then they realize that that's so much easier than sending a blind resume or making a cold call trying yeah. to get an appointment. A cold call for anything. You got to right. work that network. Mm-hmm. And um and I certainly didn't come up with that phrase, but that's one that we really work hard. So.
0: Yeah, I think that that's critical for any, you know, rising leader in and also, you know, I think it goes along with that in its terms of good networking is uh, the law of reciprocity, right? Not, you don't want to be the person that every time it comes around to asking for something and can't provide value out. So it's like, what can you provide that's value? And maybe that's, you know, if you build your network, right, you may have someone in your network to pass off or your own skills. But, you know, when you do, when you do help someone, and I'm not saying you should help people obviously just because you expect something in return but when you're the type of person who just gives sort of without without that um and you try to exceed people's expectations then when it comes time for you to to make that call or to ask for that thing or call for your intern right like they pick up um and so i think it's an important skill for people as they try to move through whatever industry they're in agreed and
1: and and as cliched as it sounds, and this has been a big thing on uh, on the socials you know a lot of LinkedIn gurus and Instagram guys will say this, but the more you the more you lift a hand up and the more you uh, I'm sorry the more you offer to lift someone up and the more you um, the more you give in the industry that you're in or the industries that you're in, you tend to get that back mm-hmm. and it took me a while to kind of get that but now. I get it a lot um, yeah and it's uh it's it's been it's been really cool to see some of these of my kids uh <laughs> out in the world doing really cool stuff now yeah know, and, and yeah. out making their own films or working for like a Netflix and you see their name on the screen
0: now and it's pr- it's pretty cool so that is that is yeah. awesome so so when you were you know to kind of go back to your story, so as you started moving through the ranks in film and networking and and what was that rise like um and working with some different, you know, executive producers and directors, wh- what did you see from them? I guess I have two questions here. So we'll start with, what did you see or what did you learn from the those leaders um, as you moved up that you saw I and mean, you said, I like that, that works? Mm-hmm. And then conversely, you're like, never doing that. Well, I've got a great anecdote for that. Yeah. <laughs> so so Super Mario Brothers. Um
1: First of all, it was it was a soup sandwich t- to start because the script just made no sense. It was just nonsensical, right? And they they shot in North Carolina in a an old cement factory that they turned into Dino York. So they went in and spent millions of dollars to turn this into this fantasy land. And the director, uh, the directors were a husband and wife team, British couple that had created Max Headroom. I don't know if you remember that. Um, oh, it was yeah. a it was a, a TV spokesman for maybe Pepsi or something, but mm-hmm. Max Headroom was a thing back
0: mm-hmm. in
1: the day. And uh, so they, I guess Disney thought it'd be a good idea to give them a $60 million budget to make this movie with no feature film experience. Wow. Well, uh, we got, it was supposed to be a four month shoot. Well, we get into month number six, and it's a disaster. And they're screaming at each other in front of the crew. You know, so you have 140 people out there trying to get the shot done with Bob Hoskins, who was a star, John Linguizamo, who was one of the stars. You know, they're standing right there, and the husband-wife team are just screaming at each other, right? Uh. So, first of all, take your beef into the trailer and work it out, and come (laughs) back out and lead us, show us what you need because we got to get this shot done. It's getting dark, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, what the good that came out of it was um, they ended up firing them. Uh, because of this disaster. And they brought in the DP. They just promoted the DP to come in and. What's the DP, sorry? Uh, director of Photography. Okay, cool. Yeah, so he's the head camera guy. And uh, awesome dude, Dean Simler, uh, Australian, I believe. Um, but he uh, he came in, he was level headed and calm. He was just chill. Everybody loved him to begin with. Mm-hmm. But now he was the captain of the ship. So everybody's right. like, tell us what to do. We want to get out of here. <laughs> Um, and then he went on and won the uh, Oscar for dances with wolves
0: wow just
1: months later so this wow. guy was legit yeah, yeah he was a baller and uh, should have had him at the beginning for sure but um, but that's the way the politics work you know you have the agents who are lobbying to get their client the job and somehow this uh, toxic leadership was there and it cost them millions of dollars of overages wow so um, that was one thing that I kind of learned it's like all right if you have bad leadership in a project like this, whether it's a film, or you're flipping a house, or you're running a pastry business, whatever it is, right? If you have
0: toxic leadership at the top, it, chances are your product is going to be garbage. Oh yeah. So man, I have so many good that brought so many good things for me to to try to pull out. So, um, so yeah, so don't forget them. So mm-hmm. you know, th- three of them. I mean, one is you know one of our mantras here at Stronger Sharer Profits, right? Is that Effective leadership is your greatest competitive advantage. Um, and not only greatest competitive advantage, but also could be your is, is A great product has never made a great company, right? Only great leadership can make a great company. Um, and so that's why it's so powerful. Um, two, you know, to bring up a military term made me think of that, you know, having the two directors and them arguing with each other is, you know, something we talk about in the military all the time is unity of command. Right. There needs to be, there's one person in charge of one thing and that's it. No, there's no, there's no committees around this. Now you can facilitate a discussion in the planning of it. Right. Like that can be a whole, everybody's got good ideas. has come together. But at the end of the day, there's one person in charge and they make the call and everyone says, yes, yes, sir. Or yes, ma'am. And, and they move on and execute. Um, like it was the best idea ever. I mean, I think it just has to be that, that unity of command. And the, the third thing to pull back, it's, it's funny because this has come up and I haven't published anything on this or I haven't like written this or talked about it, but one of the strange sort of like leadership uh, concepts that I think applies is, uh, do you remember like the dog whisper? Cesar Milan, yeah, yeah, right? Okay, yeah, So, sure. yeah, so that, he was like huge, and I got I got my dog Jabba. He was 14 and a half and still kicking and doing great, which is crazy. Um, but I got his like six DVD set when I got her. It's like perf- bring the perfect puppy in or whatever. And I followed it to the T because I never had a dog before. But, you know, he always says he was training the people that dogs fall follow, follow calm, assertive leaders. And it's so funny because you could – People follow calm, assertive leaders too, right? They, you know, if, if you lose your cool and you're emotional and you're like, people start to freak out. Like, who's at the helm of this thing if you're, if you're irrational, if you're, if you can't control your emotions, if you don't have the maturity? And, but if you're that calm, but assertive leader, uh, you know, apparently you can walk a dog and, you know, lead a company (laughs) with that mindset. No question. And, you know, that brings up, um,
1: to give a, a a movie analogy to that, uh, Dick Winters and Band of Brothers. If you think about his leadership style and how Mm. wired tight he was, but he was never the yeller. He was never the guy that was out there yelling at his troops. He motivated him and he led from the front Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, love that series. One of the greatest of all times, by the way, but, uh, um, but but you're exactly right. I think that calmness in uh, in uh, rough seas is
0: imperative or, because if you start losing your stuff, the troops below you are going to lose it's it too. all behind. Yeah. Man, well, we are just getting into it, um, and so I want to take a, a quick break. I'm sure we're going to make this a part one, and we'll get into a part two uh, in a second here with Scott McTavish because we've got so much more to talk about, man. I'm excited. This is awesome. Hey, yeah, Great, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Leadership After Hours Podcast. If you haven't already, join us in the modern leadership revolution by hitting the subscribe button and giving us a review on whatever platform you listen to or watch the Leadership After Earth Podcast. For a better tomorrow, create a new leader today.